Audi. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. If you want to chat, join us on Facebook on the Big Travel Podcast Facebook group. And if you have any suggestions for people you'd like to see on the show, send them along. I will do my best to see if I can persuade them to come on. On to today's guest then. Shall we have some music? You've got to be seriously funny to be Simon Cowell's go-to funny man. As the comedian in charge of warming up audiences for The X Factor, Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent and much more, Ian Royce has entertained people the world over. He's worked on cruise ships, been weed on in Barbados and once performed on the roof of a tank in Bosnia. Despite this outwardly charmed life, he's been open about depression and dedicates a lot of energy to fighting this cause. His brilliantly funny accounts of his travels will make you laugh, smile and might even bring a tear to your eye. Let's give a big welcome to Royce. So I'm a stand-up comic, and about 15 years ago, I called in to do a warm-up on TV for Pop Stars: The Rivals, because uh, someone went sick, and then I met this guy Simon, and no one knew who Simon was, and I didn't know who Simon was, and I just well, I took the piss out of him. Really, this is what I've done for the last 15 years, and then uh, I did uh, Pop Idol with Simon. And then uh, Simon started Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor. The X Factor came first, and uh, I've been there ever since. So I'm the warm-up guy on Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent I did, uh, The X Factor, Piers Morgan's Life Stories, other list goes on and on. So are you mates with Simon now, yeah. is it fair to say? Yeah, we're really good friends. He's been uh, extremely supportive through my life. We always have a good laugh. And, you know, it's really funny because people have this perception of him. He's one of the kindest men I've ever met in my life. He really, he truly is. I'll give you a prime example of this. We'll give you two examples, actually. Uh, we were doing a, one of our shows, and a couple of the judges, who will remain nameless, came down and gave away all this charity stuff and talked about this charity stuff, and then another judge came down and talked about their charity stuff. And I said, Simon, would you want to talk about yours? And he went, no, I choose not to talk about that. So he doesn't, you know, what he does, and I'm not in any position uh, to ever say what he does, that's for him to do, but I know the lengths that man goes to. We had a producer on The X Factor who brought some kittens uh, back from her holiday. You know when you go on holiday, you always find a cat, right? She found this cat outside her villa or hotel room, and the cat had kittens, so she decided to adopt the kittens and brought them back and said, I need to get rid of these kittens. I said, well, let's make an announcement. In, in, in the audience, there's 4,000 people here. So we announced who wants anyone like a kitten from uh, some Caribbean island. So two people put their hands up and said, we'll have the kitten. 
And then Simon stood up and said, and I'll pay for their food for the rest of their lives. All your stuff is improvised, isn't yes. it? So something like someone bringing a load of kittens back from the Caribbean and being able to offer them to the audience. Yes, so it's brilliant. like gold dust. No, I love it. I do love you do it. any preparation at all? No, I never, ever, ever. I've got, I've got some stuff that I do. I do, a, I do the phone nick, which is quite popular. I go into people's handbags. All respect to comedians who go up to Edinburgh and they do their routines to see what works and what's funny. You know, good luck to them. And I, I think it's impressive, you know, but I just can't. I, well, I'm too lazy, I think, actually. I like to walk out to see what happens. You must be incredibly confident about walking out there because I'd be absolutely terrified. On a stage with a microphone is my home. That's where I'm most at ease in my life. And I have a very complicated life, but that's exactly where I love to be. Microphone, spotlight, audience. I'm in my, I'm in my heaven. Is it almost because you're pretending to be someone else while you're there? No, because I'm just me. I don't pretend to be anything else other than myself. No, I'm not actually myself. If I was, up to, if I was myself up there, everyone would be in tears. Well, nobody's um, their real self outside no. anyway. I think um, I just feel very comfortable. I love people, and I like, I like banter. And I like to look into stuff and see stuff. I mean, we, I've, oh, I mean, I could sit here for four hours and tell you some of the stuff we've got up to on stage and some of the things that have happened. I don't know why they just seem to find me, these people. I don't know what happens. We had a great one with Vernon Kay. We were doing um, Family Fortunes. And I was in the audience and there was this girl sat down the front. She was a young girl, maybe 18, 19, and she was sat with an older lady. So I just went over and had a chat with her, and I said, well, what are you doing here? You know, how's, how's life? What's going on? She said, I've just come back from my modelling. And I said, oh, well, that, that's nice. And she said, well, I've got pictures. And I said, oh, can I see the pictures? But it wasn't really modelling. It was more like pornographic modelling. Oh, no. But her nan was so her proud nan. of her. <laughs> so I, I took the pictures, and I went to the production office and photocopied uh, 800 of them, and then gave them out to the audience. <laughs> Vernon was... He just looked at me and he went, I can't believe you've just done that. And then I showed him the pictures and he went, oh my God. But the girl was really proud of these pictures. And her nan was like, my granddaughter. And I'm looking at these pictures. I mean, you, I'm just going to leave it up to your minds what the pictures were. But let's just say, yeah, they were, yeah. I want to ask if you've seen her in anything since. But that no. kind of opens a whole kind of world. God, no. God, please, no. <laughs> as to where you might well, have we seen had her. a lady in Loose Women who uh, sat in the front row. I would suggest maybe 70 years old, 65, 70 a lovely lady, just sat there, I said, I was chatting away as I did to the audience. She said, I'm on my own. I said, that's fantastic. I said, why have you come on your own? She said, I don't have any friends. So we were going to this whole comedy routine. And she said, but I do have one friend. And I said, well, what's your one friend? And she pulled a vibrator out of her handbag. <laughs> I swear to God. And I just... Flexible friend. It was loose women at 12.30 in the afternoon. And she's like 65 years old. But the audience are like looking, going... Where's he going to go with this? And I'm like, I don't actually know where to go with this. I did another handbag for a lady. I like to, I get people out of the audience and they bring their handbags. You like up. to go through people's handbags. It's basically. fun. I don't. You know, it's, it's just a laugh. It's not something you don't do out, out no. of work. But she had a copy of the Karma Sutra in her handbag to come and watch Britain's Got Talent. Who comes along to watch a TV show with the Karma Sutra in their bag? Who does that? We had a lot of fun. Simon Cow. No, Simon, no, definitely not. I don't think he needs one. So what about when you're on the road? Do you get to hang out? Yeah, we, you know, we go for a drink after the show and we all sort of sit together during the show. We have two shows a day, so uh, there's often a break in between for like an hour, an hour and a half. We'll all sit and have dinner together and chat together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've known these guys a long time, you know. I know you've travelled quite extensively oh yeah. with your work. Mm -hmm. You were in South America on a tour for with... 
One Direction. Yeah, the one, no, actually, I didn't actually tour with them. That's I, I, what I did was the uh, when they released the South American tour, I hosted that. But I've been to New York with One Direction, which was, that was an eye-opener. I've known the boys since no one knew the boys. You know, we all did on the production team when nobody knew them. But we kind of, you kind of knew they were going to be massive because by about week two, they were very similar to JLS, actually. The same kind of thing happened. Week two, there was like, well, week one, there was no one outside the gates. Week two, there's like 100 people outside the gates. Same with JLS, same thing. And then by week four, there's like 5,000 people outside the gates, and you just knew you just knew this was going to be epic. I've been very blessed to work with them. I've done a, their book tape with them. I've done Wembley with them. And then New York came up to go to New York, which was amazing. So I was flown over to New York. I was staying at Trump Tower, believe it or not. And uh, I got in the car. They sent a car, this beautiful limousine. It's like all the roads are closed and there's people everywhere. And I'm like, oh, it must be like a demonstration. No, they're the 1D fans. There was thousands of them. So we pull up outside the hotel and it's like, it starts screaming. Okay, the car kind of starts screaming. I'm like, there's someone behind me. But if you are associated with One Direction, their fans are so loyal that if you're associated, by default, you become part of that 1D family. And I'm signing autographs and I walk up the stairs. It was mad. It was, I've never seen anything like it. Thinking I'm like bang slam in the middle of it. It was, it was incredible. But the boys are just the boys to me. They're not, you know, they're not One Direction to me. They're just lads I know. And, and I'm so proud of them. So proud of me, and what they do uh, to help others is phenomenal. Yeah, how early on can you see that they're going to have that sort of star I mean, quality? You, you know, straight away. You do. I knew it with James Arthur, uh, Alexander Burke. Uh, you just know. It's like Susan Boyle. I mean, the minute she walked on, everyone's just like, yeah. Being there since day one and seeing so many acts, you, you just know. Just before we get on to other things. What are we getting on to? That's well, <laughs> I know. I'm just making yes. it up now. I make my life up as I go along. You've entertained the troops. You're like yeah. a modern-day Vera Lynn. What are you doing? Are you... So I did, years ago, um, it's a great story, actually. I got booked by, they're called Combined Services Entertainment, CSE. And what they do is they send a singer, a comedian, and some dancers. And what they do is they send you out into what's called theatre. Theatre is an active camp for the troops in a theatre of war. So the first one I went on was <laughs> with Tony Hadley, uh, Spandau Ballet fame, of course. And Tony, I, I was a massive fan of Spandau Ballet. So I turned up at the airport and I had a friend who worked for British Airways and I phoned him and I said, they were flying his business class anyway. And I said, um, any chance of a cheeky upgrade? And he was like, well, where are you going? And I told him what we were doing. And he said, no, of course, if you entertain the troops, of course we'll give you an upgrade. So I meet Tony at check-in, and it's a night flight going to, I think it's Oman. Where's the dry country? I think it's Oman. So we meet, and we get upgraded to first class. So now we're best friends, right? Now, Tony likes to drink, and uh, back then I did as well. So we get absolutely hammered in the bar with him and uh, some of the boys from the band and the dancers, and then we get on the plane and we're flying. No, I've never flown first class. Right, so this is to me is like I'm in heaven. So it's BA first class. I get up there. They got this. They put the bed down, the quilt and pajamas. I got when I put the pajamas on. Tony said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, they're free. I've got to put the pajamas on." I'm thinking, "I'm going to the movies, and I'm going to have a lovely dinner." And we're both a bit la la. So uh, I thought I'll just shut my eyes for ten minutes. So the next thing I know, I've got a stewardess going, "It's about to land, sir." I went, "No, no, no, no. You know, you can't land. I've not played with anything. I've not done the telly. I've not had the meal. I've not had it." So literally, I slept my way all the way through first class. So we arrived, and uh, the stewardess came over and gave Tony two bottles of water, and me two bottles of water. And I said, well, "This is very kind. Thank you very much." And uh, so we get into the country. Say this might not be allowed back again. And I've got a bit of a hangover. So I've got some of the water. So I sit the water. It's pure vodka. So the stewardesses on it's given me a tiny two bottles of vodka. I think time we shared it with the band and the dancers, I think it lasted like that night. 
So there was probably 15 of us. So then we'd run out, there's no alcohol, which is fine. So about three or four days later, Tony says, oh, I'd love to do a drink. I said, yeah, no, I wouldn't mind one actually. So we did this gig and we're pulling out the camp and there's a man stood on the side of the road, waving. He said, uh, I have alcohol, alcohol. He's got this big litre bottle of alcohol. So I said to Tony, well, should we have it then? He went, yeah, go on. And I said, how much? I think he said a dollar. So we buy this litre bottle of pure white alcohol, which I presumed at the time was vodka. And uh, we go back to the hotel, we're like two little children, because we haven't had like a drink for like a week. And it's like, we're really excited. So we go up to the room and we get the glasses out, we get the Diet Coke and the orange juice, we put the ice in, it's like Christmas morning, it's pure methylated spirits. So what do we do? Add Thank more you. Coke, <laughs> add some more orange juice. And we're about halfway through the drink, I've got major indigestion, he's, he's like, <clears throat> and I said, Tony, you do realise we're sat in a room drinking methylated spirits? <laughs> we did chug, we just threw it away, I mean, it was disgusting. But it was a good tour, it was a great tour, and it was performed on uh, the Art Royal, on the flight deck of the Art Royal, flown in by helicopter. Every aircraft carrier has a support ship, so they said, would you mind just going to do a gig on the little, I call it the little boat, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, of course we will. They said, we know you don't have to. I said, no, no, it's fine. We'll just, we'll go across. So there was me and three of the dancers. So we go down and we get on the little boat thing, the little tender, and it goes across to this boat. Now, the problem is there's a rope you have to climb up to get up. And I'm looking at this rope thinking, well, first I don't do heights. Secondly, I'm not a very good climber. And thirdly, there's a lot of water below me in that. So there's me climbing up this rope and all the lads and lasses on board are just howling at my ridiculous climbing ability to get up on the boat. But we did the gig on there. It was phenomenal. It was great. Great experience. So where was the theatre, the army theatre? It was a stage in the middle of the desert. With like 2,000, they had American, they had American base uh, next door to the British base. So the Americans and the Brits were all, and there must have been 2,000 men and women just in the middle of the desert, just sat on the floor. What was that like? Amazing. I love the troops anyway. Right? They got a wicked sense of humour. We had, a, I did a gig in um, Bosnia in a, an aircraft. Oh, I've done a gig on top of a tank in Bosnia as well, actually. That was a, quite a funny story. They were out tank training before the gig, and the tank was to be brought in to the, it was just a hangar. And then we would perform uh, on a stage that was built over two tanks. But the people who went out on the tank crashed the tank. So they brought the crashed tank back, but they could So I ended up standing on top of a tank doing the gig to all the troops. And then we did another one in a hangar, uh, with all the the guys and the girls. And then, unbeknown to me, about three minutes before the gig uh, started, the head of all troops in Bosnia walked in with, like, three bodyguards around him. Well, that was it. There was a whole hour done on him. He was mortified. But the lads and lasses loved it. You know, because like, you just say what they want to say, but they can't say they it. They would never, ever no. say that. No, but that was great fun. I, I've, I've Great times uh, entertaining the troops. It's been my highlights of my career, actually. It'd be, it's been great fun. Because... Uh, you know, their sense of humour is wicked. They're very grateful for you to be there. You know, they've been away from home for a long, long time. Uh, and you can get away with murder, really. And in today's day and age, you probably couldn't right now. You can't get away with anything. But when you're with the lads and the lasses of our armed forces, it's, uh, yeah, it's a whole different experience. So where else have you been with them? Oh, my goodness. Bosnia, Oman, Croatia, everywhere. There's so many places. And all the bases around uh, the UK as well, RAF and Army and Navy. And do you get to see anything when you're, are you just sort of literally thrown, thrown no, in and flown out? They're really good. When you, when you do a CSE tour, they take you out and show you stuff. So you get to see like tornadoes and you get to sit in tanks and you get to drive a tank, which was very difficult actually driving a tank. Is not, Funnily enough. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, let me tell you. You go into their messes, into the mess where they go and you buy a beer for like 20p 
you get to hear the stories, to hear heroic stories and tragedies, and you know how they lost men. And it's a very funny thing to do because you go and entertain them and you give them lots and lots of laughs and you give them a really good night out, me or Tony or the girl or whoever. But behind all of that, when you come out of that, we had a place in uh, Bosnia, which was, what's the a British Army radio station, BBFS? Uh, yeah, the it? British Forces Radio, they call yeah, it. So they had, their station was situated in this hut and they had a swimming pool. But it was just a blow-up little round paddling pool. But that was because it was hot. That's what the lads would come and ladies would come and sit in. We slept in a, in like this tin container. But every time you moved, everyone could hear everything. And then when you go to there's no one suite or anything. You all go to the same, and they're all shaving and washing. And then, but they're immaculate because they get inspected every day. So I'd walk in and leave a bit of toothpaste. They'd be like, uh, "What are you doing, mate?" But they're, it was a phenomenal experience. I learned a lot actually. I learned a lot about uh, their life and what they have to go through away from their families, you know, it's a big eye opener. I listened to a really nice interview that you did with Gary Barlow, who I'm yep. assuming is a friend of yours yep. from the X Factor mm -hmm. Connection and more, and you were talking about your childhood holidays and what you did in holiday camps when you were a kid. Yeah, I think one of my first holidays was Butlins and then Pontins, and then ironically I became Blue Coat. I've kind of surrounded myself with holiday makers a lot because I spent four, not only the cruising I did for Air Tours and Thompson and P&O and um, Celebrity and all the major cruise lines, but uh, Thompson Holidays uh, used to send acts out to their hotels all, all across Europe uh, to entertain uh, their guests. So I did all of that as well. So was, I've done all the Caribbean, I've done every Caribbean island, every major resort in Europe. Funnily enough, actually my ex-wife ended up working for the company who booked the acts. And uh, I went over to Cyprus to do a gig in a hotel, which was next door. It was a very English hotel. It was next door to a German hotel, which was owned by Germans. And uh, halfway through my act, they're doing the German umpla thing, which is drowning out my act. So I was like, well, I'm not having this. So I got all the British guests <laughs> to stand on their stand on their chairs. It wasn't Land of Hope and Glory, was it? No, it was the Dan Busters. <laughs> sang the Dan Busters. <laughs> da, 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 da. So um, all the British guys are doing this, and the Oompa Loompa Germans take offence by this. But it was hilarious. Funnily enough. But we had this little battle thing going on. It was very funny. Anyway, my ex-wife goes out to visit the resorts, unbeknown to me, and she sat in this meeting with all the hotel directors and... One hotel director said, oh, we can't have one of our acts back because he caused nearly World War Three." And my ex-wife said, oh, who, who was that? And they said, it was Ian Royce. And I'm with her, married to her at the time. And she went, I will personally speak to him. She came out of the meeting, she phoned me, and she went, I've never been so embarrassed in all my life. She said, because everyone who works for the company knew you were married to me, but none of the hoteliers knew. But we had lots of laughs. So she worked for the company, did she? She did, yeah. So that was funny. And then in Cyprus, once we, uh, I don't know why, I was doing a gig and that's right I was doing a gig and a, a man arrived to deliver ping pong balls and the bag must have had a thousand ping pong balls in it so it would be really funny just to open the bag and throw it out to the audience you've never seen anything like it my hotel was just covered in ping pong balls I got fired from I think it was Haven or one of the, the holiday camps because I went on the stage there was loads of children they're all screaming and shouting and running around it's just, I'm not having this you know, I can't, I can't do comedy when I've got kids running, whatever. So they had the, I don't know, the crocodile or the bear thing backstage. Mascot or whatever. Yeah, they come out and do the clapping and the song. So I went backstage and just got the head and brought it out and went, crocodile's dead. Parents thought it was hilarious. However, what went slightly wrong was the kids started crying. There was like mass trauma. 
And it's, I never got invited back there again. But the letter I got from the company was just hilarious. I said, Ian, we're going to have to fire you. He's, and they did. They fired you for the decapitated crocodile. Yeah, I decapitated the crocodile, which was only a... We're really sorry we need to fire you, but can we just say it is probably one of the funniest things we've ever heard about. So yeah. you were going to these places with your parents. What sort of family did you grow oh, up Oh, family, in? yeah. I mean, that's a tough old one, but we went oh, everywhere, really. We did the holiday camps, and then my first holiday abroad was in a place called Lorette de Mar, which was, frankly, well, I, I mean, I can't even find the words for it. It was just horrific. How old were you? Nine. Someone smashed a glass by the side of the pool, and they just brushed it into the swimming pool. The food was disgusting. It was just horrible. It was back in the early 80s, late 70s, when it was real, you know. And then my dad bought a caravan, and we caravanned in uh, France uh, every year for a couple of weeks, which was great. You know, we had a, well, I never stayed in the caravan. We had a tent, so I'd have a tent. And uh, one year we went away. I was going through my mod phase, so I had this huge parka with a Union Jack on the back. So they'd always have, like, a disco for the kids and stuff, so I thought to myself, uh, I'll go out to mod tonight. 30 degrees heat come out of my tent and my mum just looks at me and went what the hell I was sweating but I was like I was a mod so I walked to the disco and just sat on the wall and then I started getting a bit dizzy because it's dehydrating and the next thing I know I'm on the floor my, my friends of mine came along and went they called my mum and dad mum had to come and get, pick me up and give me water it was kind of the end of my mod career really there are some popular cultures that just don't work in hot countries I grew no. up in Spain and I tried briefly to be a goss but you know, the white makeup, no, it just, no. it was sweltering. Who wants to be a goth? I don't ever understand the goths, especially in the middle of the summer when they're walking down the road with all the black and the big makeup, and it's like... You need to be in England, in Scotland, in Berlin, maybe. You need to, yeah. if you're going to wear What's that... What's Berlin? I think I've been to Berlin, actually. Oh, it's I, amazing. Italy's probably my favourite, one of my favourite places. Firstly, I love the food. I think the scenery is beyond anything I've ever seen. You can't find the words, actually. You have to go. It's one of the places you have to go. Uh, but my daughter had just been born, so we went out for dinner one night. So we walked down this little road and we just found this little Italian restaurant just overlooking the lovely sea. We go in with my daughter, who's like in a pram, six months old. And the mother, who obviously is the mother of the person who owns the restaurant, comes out, all dressed in black, so obviously be, uh, widowed, and uh, just takes Roxanne for the whole meal. We never saw Roxanne for like two hours, just looking after the kids. And that's why I love Italy. It's a very family, you know, I've got a real love for Italy. It's very unique in its authenticity. They have a very strong sense of family as well, I think, you know, it's very important. I think a lot of European countries have that from what I've seen, you know, Spain and Portugal and France. There is a, a you know, a very big thing is all about family. And I think sometimes we've lost that in this country. Like, and you a, do charity work, don't yeah, you? I think the greatest gift in life is to be able to give back. I have a lot of time on my hands. I'm very privileged that, you know, I work in an industry where most of it is in the evening. I don't work every night of the week, although that would be nice. So I have time, and it's how you use your time. I love a holiday, but at the same time, I always think it's good to humble and ground yourself, you know. You've had your issues as well. I know you've yeah. spoken quite openly about Absolutely. mental health yeah. and depression. Yeah. There is a strong correlation, a connection with comedians that have mental health issues with yeah. depression. What do you think that's about? I don't know. I think uh, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for any other comedian, but I think I do what I do because I'm the ultimate people pleaser. You know, when you walk on a stage, everyone laughs at you and loves you. That's an amazing place to be. When you're in depression and suffer anxiety as I do, it's not as bad now, but when you do... Uh, you don't like yourself very much, you know, and it's a, it's a very dark place, and mental health is very important to me, and it's, 
which I just wrote a blog for my friend Craig Eden, who you can find on my Twitter feed, Defensing Life, who I'm writing for at the moment about mental health. And it's actually about, it's about acceptance of self and it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to talk about mental health. If you look back about 15 years, no one talked about it. You know, if, if you were depressed, people would be like, oh, cheer up, pull yourself together, you know, get over it. You know, oh God, here comes miserable or oh, you're prophet of doom. But actually, the biggest killer in men under the age of 45 is suicide. The biggest killer. Not cancer, not leukaemia, not car accidents, not alcohol. Suicide. I think things are getting better. Yeah, they are. I think, well, now the conversation has started. Heads Together, who is on Twitter, if you want to go and follow them, which was supported by the princes and the duchess. A a massive thing with the Mind Charity and lots of other charities around mental health. You know, it's okay to talk about it. And I have no shame in talking about it either. Because when you start talking about mental health, some people back away from that. You know, they, they don't like it. You know, I lost a lot of work through it as well. They were like, oh God, he's gone a bit wibble, he's gone a bit wobble. And, and I talked about my mental health maybe five years ago online before anyone, a few people were talking about it, not many. But now everyone's talking about it. And you know what, that's good. It's brilliant. If you just reach one person who reads your Twitter feed or reads my blog, if they just read that and that saves them, amazing. When you were suffering from a lot of anxiety, mm-hmm. how does that compute with going out on stage in front of all those people? Well, as I said to you earlier, the, the best thing in my life is being on stage. That's my safest place. So I don't, I don't suffer one ounce of anxiety walking onto a stage. What I do enjoy is the excitement and the joy of walking out there. That's amazing to me. But when anxiety hits, and it was horrific. I, you know, I would spend two days in bed, I, unable to get out of it, too scared to even walk downstairs, to face anybody, to pick up a phone, to open a letter. And that's how bad it was, it was crippling, absolutely crippling. It was like, I only, the only way I can describe it really is like being in a coma, but you're wide awake and it's horrible. And the problem is it's just a vicious circle because just, it just keeps going around in your mind and the more it goes on in your mind, the worse it gets and the worse it gets, the more it goes around in your mind and you just go down and down and down and down and down. Luckily, I found the courage to reach out and ask for help and some people noticed that I wasn't quite right and they have been extremely supportive and I've come back again you know, and that's, you know, that, there is a way out. There is, you've just got to find it and, and the, the biggest thing to do is to reach out and ask for help and there's no shame in doing that. For people who might be listening and, and relating to this, what help was that? Professional help? It was initially, but help comes from many different ways. I mean, just speaking to somebody. And what I wrote about this in my blog as much is also the flip side. It's about if someone speaks to you, listen, don't judge. Just love, just support. Don't do, oh, it'll be fine tomorrow. It just Because if someone does reach out to you, that's probably the bravest thing they're ever gonna do. Because what they're actually saying is, I need some help. So my help came in many different ways. A very supportive ex-wife, a very supportive friend. I went into professional care, learned a lot about myself. I have to chuckle at it, really, because I was telling my story in this group, and uh, all I could hear was people going, I'm like, why was I doing that for? And then the the counsellor said, this is unbelievable what you're telling us. And I'm like, well, no, it's just my normality. That's all I've grown up with. That's always been my normality. And it was a a massive wake-up call for me is I know why I'm like I am, but didn't realise why I am like I am. So I did a lot of lot of self-healing, a lot of self-loving, a lot of analysing, a lot of throwing stuff away in my head and boxing stuff up. And, and yeah, you grow from it. And how has just, that transformed your daily existence? Now, I'm in a really happy place now. I'm in a really good place for a lot of help and support, particularly around X Factor and Britain's Got Talent and my boss at Fremantle Media and Simon. Uh, they've been massively supportive. They said, I'm part of the family, you know, we've been together a lot of years now and interestingly we're a very humble family 
you know, there's no big heads. You know, there's no one's bigger than the show. We support each other a lot, and it's yeah, it's lovely. It's it is a family. What's the future of X Factor? Because there's been talk of it ending. Oh, there's always talk of it ending. I mean, I can't answer the question because I don't know. I'm the warm-up guy. It's a massive machine, you know. It really is. I always chuckle when they say let's get rid of it because I always, in my head, I always say and replace it with what. You know, we get hammered a lot in the press and on social media. But when you, you know, because the figures aren't there anymore. The figures aren't there for any show at the moment. So let's be honest. But I think it's a good show. And it always makes me chuckle. People go, oh, I can't stand the X Factor. I was watching it last week and I saw that. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, well, you don't know if it's it that much if you're watching it. Last year was an amazing year because we had artists singing their own songs. Raksu, who my daughter is absolutely obsessed with, you know, it's their own material. And I think Roxanne's mad about them. I went around the other day, she had a Sonos thing on, I don't know what that is, but it was like blaring out all over the house. No, I think that's the power of the show. You know, we've been through generations, which is really interesting because the audiences have grown up with the show. So it's been fascinating. And it, you get to know people from the show and some of their stories and what they do. And amazing. I mean, it's a real privilege to be part of it. Will it go? Nothing lasts forever. You know, that's the truth. I can't see it going anywhere at the moment. What about Piers Morgan? What's he like? I love Piers. Slate for that. I've known Piers since uh, he started on Britain's Got Talent and would ruthlessly rip into him. I used to, uh, when he walked into the auditorium, we'd always have big cheers for Simon and massive cheers for Amanda. Then when he walked out, I'd get the audience to chant, who are you, who are you, or slow hand clap, which Simon just absolutely thought was hilarious. And then he did get his own back though, because I went to America to do America's Got Talent. And uh, we were in Los Angeles and uh, I was, well, frankly, dying on my ass. It wasn't going well at all. And Why, I just, a different sense of humour? No, do you know what it was? They In LA, they pay the audience to come. So you get people who just come along to get $20. They don't really give a toss about the show. Why They're do just, they need to pay people to come and see it? I don't know. I think it's just what happens in America. But what's hilarious was this one time, they brought in the gang rehabilitation centre of Los Angeles into the theatre. So everyone was wearing their colours. So I'm absolutely dying on my ass. And I just remember Piers looking up at me. I said something to him hopefully to get something back that I could work on. And he just looked at me and went, not going too well, is it, Roycey? Oh. <laughs> oh, my God, I was like, OK, mate, well, you probably deserve that, to be fair. But they had the gang rehabilitation centre in, who then started fighting between each other. That happened in Britain's Got Talent as well. We were, we were in the East End, and just a punch-up started in the middle of the audience. It's a shame they don't televise that. I've always said they should televise the warm-up and a bit in between. It'll make a great TV show. Has anything particularly awkward happened when you've been away? Yeah, I was on... <laughs> I was on a flight going to pick a cruise ship up. And when you're flying maybe four, six times a month, long haul, short haul, you get really bored because you've seen the films, the magazines you've seen. It's just, there's nothing to do. You know, you've read every book you want to read. So I'm sat in the front of the plane, got this lady next to me, she starts talking to me and I thought I'll make up a story to keep myself amused before I pick up the cruise ship. So I said I was a, an undercover uh, MI5 operative and we were following someone on the plane. Well, of course, this story just got more and more bizarre as the flight went on. You know, I'd, I'd go to the toilet and I'd be like, she says he there. I'd say, yeah, we're just, we're just four of us on the plane, just keeping tabs on him. So this went on for the eight-hour flight. I said I'd have a little sleep because I was, you know, straight into operations when we got off the plane. And, you know, when we got the flight, she said, there's amazing stories. I said, please don't say anything. She said, no, 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 I'm like, oh, I won't tell anybody. She said, it's amazing. I said, she said, can I stand by and watch you get off the plane? I said, no, no, that'd be too obvious. So uh, we got on the plane, think nothing of it. And I get onto the cruise ship and uh, there's a note in my cabin that said, would you like to come and meet the cruise director? And I said, absolutely. 
I'll walk into the oh, cabin. No, I can see where this is going. It's only the same woman. She's my cruise director. She just looked at me and she went, really? At least I, she I knew just, that I, you had comedic value. I think that was I a very melted. good I absolutely melted. for the job. I didn't know what, I honestly. And then we went, we went to the Caribbean, went to Jamaica. And we met a guy there called Phil Smith who was on holiday on his own. Well, Phil's now one of the most famous hairdressers uh, in the country. Phil does, you know, he's got all his brands in, in, in supermarkets and won numerous awards. But this was before anyone knew who Phil Smith was. So me and my when we, my ex, we'd always end up making friends with single people. I don't know how we did it. I just, I think it's me. I just like see people. Oh, they're on their own, you know. So we went on all these trips. But we decided to go on, a, we were in Montego Bay. And it was £179 for a week. Flights, hotel, pay for what you get though, right? We were in the middle of, well, hostility could be the only word to describe where we were. Like other people weren't allowed out of the hotels. So we decided to go on a catamaran trip to a, and they advertised it as um, to a beautiful secluded island. So we decided to go on this catamaran trip. So it was me, Phil and, and my ex. And we go on the trip and they say, you want to jump in the sea? So there's all these Jamaican men with little thongs on, leopard skin thongs, dancing on the boat. <laughs> Me and Phil are just, I mean, I'm breathing in. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> so we all jump in the sea, but there's loads of jellyfish. So we all get stung. Like the whole boat stung. So the Jamaican men went, don't worry, we will wee on you. And I'm like, you'll do what? So they're just walking around weeing on people. I said to Phil, I said, this is the most bizarre trip I've ever been on. So we arrive at this island and we get off the boat and they say, do you want to play volleyball? So we're playing volleyball on this island. They bring some food out. It's this beautiful, lovely beach. So they this roaring noise. What's that bloody noise? And it's taken us about three hours to get there. I hear this roaring noise and a plane comes over our heads by about four foot. So I said to Phil, I think we're at the end of the runway. So we walk through the bushes and we open the thing and we are at the end of the <laughs> runway. It, does, it gets even better. Then a storm comes in and they said, we need to get you back on the boat, we need to get you back, back to the harbour. So they put us on the boat and it took from the island to get back to the harbour about seven minutes. So what they'd done was drive out, go around in circles five times and drive them back. It was like $100 each. Taking you to the end of the runway. And we all got weed on. What's that all about? <laughs> that was good fun. Oh, that's brilliant. So uh, my last question for you, yeah. it's a question we can't afford to answer, okay. but it's about music, because in my mind, music and travel often go hand in sure. hand. If you had to pinpoint one song oh. that reminds you of a time and place related to travel that has had a special moment or a special meaning to you, what would that be? Wow, that's a big question. I would, oh, see, I'm, you know what's going to happen here? I'm going to answer this. And I'm going to leave. I'm going to want to come back. No, 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 no. Hang on a minute. What springs to my mind? You've got so much music in your life. Oh, so much music in my life. Wow. Can I do a happy one and a deep one? Let's do the deep one first. Okay. Um, when I was going through quite a depressive time and I was doing a bit of travelling and I was not in a great place and I listened to Gary Barlow Dying Inside, which he's never released, which is one of the most beautiful songs I think he's ever written. I'm absolutely shocked that he's never released it, but I spent a lot of time traveling and listening to that song because it, it really hit hard with me. And it just, it was like he was singing to me about my life at that time. On a happier note, it's always good to be happy. I think I'm gonna have to say story of my life in one direction because going to New York, going to Madison Square Gardens and doing their fan day on a boat with the boys and with all the families, which I'd warmed up and being with them all and it's sad, actually, because Harry lost his stepdad and, of course, Louis lost his mum. And they're like part of the family, you know? 
and having us all together there and watching the boys and watching the families and watching you know them at Madison Square Gardens and doing their fan day all about it was just phenomenal so story of my life I think is a very happy song for me because it's been part of, and it's a tiny part I know but it's been part of that journey and watching them evolve and now off doing their single careers and stuff which is fantastic Fantastic. That sounds like a beautiful snapshot in time. Yeah, it, it really was. The X Factor is very important to me because it's more than a show to me. It's, you know, I've watched careers grow, dive. I mean, look at James Arthur. I mean, James Arthur was massive and then his career absolutely nosedived and he, he didn't give up. He wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he's back again with bells on. And all the artists that I see, even the ones, I always chuckle at the ones that go, this is not the end. I'm coming back. <laughs> no, everyone wants to be a celebrity now. The difference is when I was growing up in the business, and still now, you want to be a star, not a celebrity. You can be a celebrity now for, I don't know, having a punch-up or wetting the bed or, you know, sleeping with somebody or being even, actually, the brother, sister, or, I mean, look, Boris Johnson's dad was on Big Brother. <laughs> I'm going in the jungle, sorry. Yeah. Boris Johnson's dad was in the jungle because he's Boris Johnson's dad. That's where we are now. You know, it's a whole new world. And I don't knock it. You know, good luck to them. Good luck to all those people that are going through that phase in their life. I've got um, a little travel tip. Do you want a little travel tip? Yes, please. If you fly on... Uh, I don't know, I'm sharing this. Can't believe I'm sharing this. Because it's my little tip. When you fly on, especially in Europe, if you just have hand luggage, you know, a lot of people go work at the weekend and just have hand luggage. But when you check in, it's fine that you take hand luggage. But when you get to the gate, they say, oh, we're going to need to put that in the hold and they put a ticket on it, which is very frustrating because you, the reason you've got hand luggage is you want to get straight on the plane. They don't take your case until you get to the plane. So what you do is just take the label off, mm. put it in your pocket, uh, and walk on the plane. Who's going to stop you? No one. Well, they don't know, do they? And every time, it's never failed me in about nine years. Do you know, years. though, it's, I had a friend who weighs people and luggage before they get on the plane, and I don't oh. know if it, she's actually sort of sizing people up, going, oh, he's a bit there. But they weigh it. It's a careful thing. So you actually might be just tipping the balance with your little hand luggage in the air. Uh, I actually, uh, when I was working for Thompson, and we fly back from Barbados, and I sat next to the biggest man I have ever, well, I mean, I literally didn't have any other seat, because he was so enormous, and it was one of those flights where we hit turbulence for like six hours, so you couldn't take your seat off. Horrific. Really you want to try flying to Tonga? Really? Is that long? No, That's it's just the people are all very large. Oh, are they? They put Tongans on a national diet. There was a national diet. They did. There I was like a national diet. They had, I don't know if chocolate was illegal and people were pushing it at the oh, school brilliant. gates, but I like to think they were. Oh, One brilliant. of the snacks they used to have was like a baguette with ice cream on top of it, whole oh. baguette with ice cream on top of it, and then condensed milk pulled all over Shut it. Shut up. I think it sounds quite nice, actually. Yeah, it does. I didn't want to go, actually. <laughs> I did, because uh, we, we were an act, uh, you were always, always the last on the plane. So if they didn't have any seats, you used to sit in the jump seat, which was with the pilot. So I've actually been uh, on the front of an airplane as it's come over Barbados and then landed into Barbados and then had the privilege of going out with the whole crew. Goodness gracious, that was an eye-opener. I've been out with crews and oh it's terrifying. You've, it, once you've gone out with crews and realised how much they drink and party oh and don't sleep, you'd never fly again. No, I think back in the day then in Barbados, I think they had like a four or five day layover. So we landed, as you do in the afternoon, and they said, well, why don't you come out with us tonight? We're going to just go out for drinks and dinner and stuff. And I was like, yeah, fine. I think I got in the next day at some point. It was just they mad. Got a place in Barbados called the Boatyard, uh, which is a great place to go uh, by Bridgetown. It's where all the cruise ship company goes, actually, because we always have a night over in, in Barbados. And it's a great bar with a beautiful beach. And there's always a man there who walks around naked. <laughs> I won't say any more than that, but it's quite phenomenal what you're going to say. Never seen anything. And he's there every time I go. I'm he's, booking it. I'm booking it. He just, it's, you've never seen anything like it. It's, it's like a horse. And he just stands outside the bar for about an hour. 
and everyone comes out and has a look. Like, you know, if does he like get paid? The, is he hired by Thomas Cook? Maybe I don't know. It's like when I was in the Maldives and the dolphins swam past the island, and everyone ran out to watch the dolphins. That's what it's like when he comes out. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, even the men were going, Jesus, what the hell? Should we stand on a beach, mate? You'd be on films. Well, that seems like a very good place to end. That sounds a good place to end, doesn't it? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a great joy coming on it. Thank you very much, Mr. Ian Royce, and thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. On episode six, I'll be speaking to someone who's completely out of my usual area of travel, former SAS soldier Ken Haynes. Ken has some incredible stories. It's a great insight into a world I'm certainly not familiar with myself. Don't miss it. And thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.